We have, uh, we started several months ago looking into the first letter of John. That is John the Apostle, his first letter to the church. We took a little bit of an excursus looking into what it means to be living out as a community of love, the love that we believe in. And now we've come back to take a look at two, uh, two themes that we need to pick up on at the very end of the first letter of John. So we are in 1 John chapter 5, and we'll be looking this morning at verses uh, 20 through, or I think it's 19 through 21, 18 through 21. I'll be concentrating on verse 21 this morning, but we'll take a look at verses 18 through 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for this exhortation. We ask that You would open our hearts to what you have to say, help us to think rightly about these things, and to encourage one another in a faithful life and a faithful love where we forsake all others and we cling to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have to remember who writes this letter as we start out or as we start to wrap this up. This is John the Apostle. John the Apostle, who is called away from the nets of his father's household, his father's business, and called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to remember that this John the Apostle actually walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for three, perhaps four years, and listened to him, and watched everything that he did, and no doubt questioned him in private, and who... Uh, discerned what Jesus taught. He was part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, those who were closest to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one of those three. We all have a close circle of friends who knows us intimately and who, with whom we can be completely frank and honest. And John was one of those guys. It's one of the reasons why his gospel looks so different from all of the others. He really got insights into who this Son of God truly was. And John, or John the Apostle is described as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. During the Last Supper, it was this John who laid back against Jesus to ask the question when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. It was this John who leaned back against Jesus and said, Lord, is it I? Who is it? 
We're talking about someone who knew Jesus intimately, who knew him well, who was a close friend. And John's original testimony was that of being an eyewitness. We recall recall from the first chapter how he said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have talked with our own hands concerning the word of life, were telling you about this. John's telling us about something that he had seen, up front and personal. If someone came to you and said, I just saw a Tyrannosaurus Rex running around through the backyard, you would, you would either want to say, you're either crazy or there's something going on out there. Now, however close you were to your friend, you might say, okay, he's not crazy, so there must be something out there. You would believe the testimony. And then John is saying, I'm telling you what we've seen. I'm telling you what we've heard and we've handled. And so this eyewitness testimony has substance to it and it has force to it. And the reason he tells us these things is because he calls us into having fellowship with God who wants to have fellowship with us and he calls us to have fellowship with one another in the Lord. I'm telling you these things because I want you to have your fellowship with us and our, our joy would be made full. That's the purpose of this letter. That's the objective. Sometimes we, don't we do this sometimes? We approach the word of God as though it's a bunch of things that we have to live up to. Oh, it's all these rules I have to live up to. No, it's so you can have fellowship with God. So you can have fellowship with other true believers. So that your, your life will be sensible, so that it'll actually be oriented to reality. That's, that's why we have this, and that's what John is saying. I want you to know him. I know him. He's wonderful. I love him. I want you to know him. And I want you to know us because he's changed us. He's transformed us. And so he begins to unfold that to us. God does not bring salvation to us merely to escape the fires of hell. He brings salvation to us so that we can have fellowship with him. That's why he made us originally. Now, throughout this letter, John has been revealing to us things about the Lord and how they need to shape our lives. There is a woman who has written and has said, God doesn't demand us to have friendships with Christians. God doesn't demand us to give up things that control our lives. God doesn't demand of us to let go of things that corrupt our minds. It's life with God that demands those things. I didn't give up all my girlfriends because my wife said, you know, you need to give up your girlfriends. It was life with my wife. It's that kind of thing. And that's what God expects of us. He wants us to live with him and to enjoy him and to delight in him as the one who is truly goodness and mercy. Now, here's some of the things that John has said about the living God. Listen to this, and this is all throughout this letter. God is light. How many of us would want to wander around in the darkness? God is light. 
God forgives sin. God is merciful. God is unchanged by time. He he is always the same. God is truth. God is personal. God gives eternal life because God himself is life. God gives anointing for us to learn. God transforms us from sinning. God breaks the power of evil in our lives. God gives confidence and assurance. God answers our requests. God gives discernment. God is love. God manifests the reality of himself through us to others. All of these things are what John says about who God is. Here's the capstone of it. I read it already in a passage this morning. Let me read it again. This is the capstone. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. That's the capstone summary. Do you want reality? Are you tired of being lied to? Walk with God. Are you tired of being manipulated and controlled by people who only want something from you? Walk with God. Are you tired of feeling as though you don't actually belong, that you're not connected to any kind of a group of people who really love, with, love you? Walk with God. That's what John's getting at here. Over and over and over again, the point source, the anchoring point, the focal point of your reality is the living God as he's revealed himself through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's why we encourage one another in this. Not because we're going to earn some favor before the Lord. We have no favor to earn before the Lord. We're we're a mess. We're empty. The favor we have has been bestowed upon us by the grace of God in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is a vapor and an illusion. And so, once he has said this, John gives us a single exhortation. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Now we have to ask, don't we? What does he mean? What does he mean by idols? Well, let's take a look at idolatry in the old old world. God did say this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. He says that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. 
Originally, when we take a look at the idols of the world, and we can still dig them up in archaeological sites, you see these these little things that have been carved out of stone, made out of clay, carved out of wood. You know, there's sometimes little handheld idols that could be carried around, some little god or something that supposedly was supposed to protect somebody. Right? It was a a man-fashioned thing. It was a man-made thing. God does not tolerate competitors. He doesn't tolerate an imitation of himself or a representation of himself. Idols do not portray anything about the true God. Sometimes people would make images of birds or monkeys or something, and then they would bow down to them. In fact, Isaiah goes into this long discussion and says, what's wrong with you people? You people, you cut down a chunk of wood, half of it you burn in the fire and you cook your bread, and the other half you turn into an idol, and then you knuckleheads bow down to it. What is wrong with you? See, this is the absurdity. When Moses was up on the mountain, he was getting the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and he was fellowshipping with the Lord. Aaron, his brother, was down on the plain, and the people were saying, Aaron, we need a god. We need somebody to kind of look to. So Aaron says, give me all your jewels. Let's, let's you know, put this stuff in the fire, and we'll melt it. And, and he made a golden calf. Now, have you ever thought about how absurd that is? Here was God who just took and visited ten plagues on Egypt and broke the back of the biggest nation on earth. And then he led the people out, and he had a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day by which he was leading them. He leads them to the Red Sea, and then as Pharaoh's army is coming up, he parts the Red Sea and allows them to go through on dry land. And as Pharaoh and his army go into that, he closes the Red Sea and wipes out the biggest army in the world. And then he leads them in the wilderness all the way to Mount Sinai. He comes down on the mountain in flame and in fire with a blast of trumpets. And the people said, do not let God talk to us. He freaks us out. Moses, you talk to us. And while Moses is up on the mountain, Aaron says, we need a golden calf. A golden calf? How many calves have you ever seen that have saved anybody? A calf? Really? How absurd can you be? And yet, how many Christians, after they declare salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, run off after something else in order to give them significance and importance? How absurd can you be? How absurd can you be? No visible man-made image can ever capture the wonder and the majesty of the true God. It's one of the reasons why he says, don't make any images of me. This is the whole point of what we read in Psalm 115. Look at verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, 
but do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Can you ever think of anything stupider than that? Seriously. Even a human being has a mouth that can speak to me or somebody who can hear me. But an idol has nothing. Nothing. It is not even a helpful image of a man because it does not, or not at all portray what a man or a woman is. And if you take a look at some of the idols from the ancient world, they're an embarrassment. They're just an embarrassment. And so we look at idolatry as being a complete absurdity. And rightly we should. Because it's so much less than what we are as human beings, and it can't possibly portray what God is. And so you say to yourself, okay, that's fine, but how many of us are actually bowing down to any kind of statues or idols today? Well, this brings us to the actual point, doesn't it? Because the Apostle Paul goes so far as to say that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness. If you crave something and you desire something, and you love it and desire it more than you love God, idolater. If you hold something really high in your heart and you think that this is going to be the thing that's going to give me significance, and it's not God himself, you're an idolater. This is the whole point. Our hearts, John Calvin, you'll see the quote there in the bottom of the page. Calvin says this, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind is as full of its pride and boldness, dares to imagine a god according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed, is overwhelmed by the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. Now, I'm going to pick on preachers first. I can't tell you how many preachers exalt an idol in their hearts and then wonder about what they're exposing themselves to. Because when one preacher looks at another preacher and says, that's the guy that I want to be, idolater. We understand that? If we exalt anything in our hearts that has more significance and more meaning than God, including ourself, our own will, our own sense of who we ought to be, if we exalt that more than we exalt God, idolatry. Do you understand now why John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols? He's not worried about these little manufactured chunks of gold and wood. He knows that what goes on in our hearts is the readiness to run to something else to give us significance, to exalt something else to give us importance or to order our world. Now, let me give you some examples of modern idolatry. Technology. 
I'm going to pick on that one right away. I was at a church in northern Illinois where a woman came to me after a worship service and said, you know, I think computers are fascinating. They're going to save the world. What? Yeah, yeah, it's going to help us solve all kinds of problems. Computers are going to be absolutely wonderful. They're going to save the world. That's like saying the hammer in my toolbox is going to save the world. What are you telling me? But yet, we look to technology to solve problems for us when the problem is dividing right down in the middle of our own hearts between good and evil. How is a computer going to help us with that? There are people who look to sports to give them satisfaction and meaning, so much so, you know, when my son was in high school, he loved soccer, loved playing soccer. He was good at soccer. He was captain of the team. He, he was going to join a traveling team for soccer. And I said, okay, sounds fine. What's involved? And he started to unfold all of the expectations. And he said, oh, yeah, and there's, there's tournaments on Sunday mornings. I just said, okay, what am I going to do with the commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me and... You shall not bow down to these things on the earth or under the earth or above the earth or or any of that stuff. What do I do with these commandments? Because God says, keep holy my Sabbath. We had a tension for a while because I was being challenged to give in to his idol. And that's always the test, isn't it? It's always the test. When an idol gets exalted, the challenge comes as to whether or not we're going to give in to it. Our culture idolizes sports. Our culture idolizes the merits of doing these things so we can get into the right college and get the right, edu- the right education. Really? Is there no sovereign God in the universe who can take you where he wants you to go? Idolatry always challenges the sovereignty and the wholesomeness of a good God. Always. It's one of the reasons why I included Westminster Larger Catechism numbers 104 and 105. I'm not going to read these to you. I want you to take these home and just reflect on these and ask, how is it that my love of God is challenged by the things in my own heart or in my own mind or in my own world, my own relationships, or my own culture? That's the whole purpose of this. Calvin is right when he says our hearts and our minds are idle factories. But I need to tell you that there is one true image that we can hold on to that will reveal perfectly who God is. There's one image only that truly and accurately portrays the living God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There is a true image. That true image is our Lord Jesus Christ. You can do no better than to linger over the Gospels, to take a look to see the majesty and the loveliness of God in the face of Christ. Because frankly, if you and I were in the circumstances that our Lord Jesus was in during life, we, we would have wound up hurting people. The Pharisees were annoying. His disciples were annoying. The Sadducees were annoying. The crowds were demanding and exhausting. And Jesus gives and is merciful and is compassionate. And he meets their needs and he loves them and he prays for them. Even as he loves us now and prays for us now and manifests the glory of the Father now and gives to us grace Colossians says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the exact stamp of God. And so there's one image that we can look to that we can say, here is someone who displays the loveliness of the God who created all things, who is infinitely powerful and intimately close and calls me into his fellowship. That's why you will always hear me say, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Are you feeling like a wipeout that you shouldn't even have any value or significance? Run to Jesus. He gives you significance. Are you feeling as though you just don't have any more to give and you're not even sure you want to give? Run to Jesus. Do you need light? Run to Jesus. Do you need a friend? Run to Jesus. You always hear me say that. Because he is the image of the living God. If you read any of the Gospels, you would say to, say to yourself, I like him. I like him, and I want him to be my friend. I like him because he speaks to me the truth, and he tells me right where I'm at. I like him because he's tender and merciful and loving. I like him because he holds on to the truth, and he won't compromise, and he won't hate me. I like him, because he won't ever let me go. Why would you not want somebody like that? The problem with idols is they have hands, but they can't hug you. They have feet, but they can't run to you when you're in need. They have mouths, but they'll never speak truth to you. They can't. Our God is a speaking God. Our God is a close God. Our God is a God who holds us close and doesn't let us go. That's our God. And if you choose anything else as God, you're choosing something less. When we elevate anything above the qualities of Jesus, we create an idol. Let's not count anything more important 
than our Lord Jesus Christ. One last thing, and this is, listen to what it says in Psalm 115. Take a look at verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all those who trust in them. You become like the thing you worship. You know that? You become like the thing you worship. How many times have you heard human beings described as computers? Well, a human being's brain is just like a computer. Have you ever thought about the nonsense of that? We created the thing. If anything, the computer's operations are something like our brains, but it's not exactly like our brains. Just like we are something like God, but we're not exactly God. We're images of God. We become like the thing we worship. What do you hold highest in your heart? Is it your free time? Is it your leisure? Is it, is, it your, is it your sport? Is it fashion? Do you hold that highest in your heart? What do you hold that's highest in your heart? You will become like that thing. Is it enough? Is it sufficient? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the infinite personal God who came to us in the flesh. That's the call to us. That's our fellowship. And that will be the satisfaction of our souls. How shall we, how shall we, what are the antidotes? The antidotes against idolatry. First of all, prayer. Prayer by praying God's character back to him. By praying to God about his own character and acknowledging the beauty of it, we will have our hearts turned to his loveliness. We become like what we worship. Would you not like to be like Jesus? So prayer. Second, cast down. In your heart and mind, cast down the idol. Chop it up. Burn it in the fire. In your own mind, if you have to do that. Gideon was supposed to tear down the altar of Baal and burn it in the judges, in order to be able to be a judge to lead Israel. Josiah, after his grandfather had put up all kinds of idols throughout Israel, was called to eliminate the shrines to the gods, which he did as faithfully as possible. When Jesus comes into your heart and life, every idol in your heart needs to be cast down and destroyed. Every idol We make idols of our children. We make idols of our spouse. We make idols of our friends. We make idols of our boss. We make idols of the movie stars. We make idols of sports stars. We make idols of all kinds of things they need to be cast down and destroyed in your own mind, in your own heart. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what God says. And then what do you do with your mind? Finally, brothers, Philippians 4.8. Paul was talking about speaking, I mean, considering one another, but think about this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
Let your mind be filled with the loveliness of the Lord Jesus. His honor. His truthfulness. His excellence. The things in him that is worthy of praise. Because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. We become like the thing we worship. As you behold the image of Jesus in the Word, and you meditate upon it, that becomes the glory that clings to you. As you meditate upon an image, that lifelessness is what clings to you. But clinging, looking at the, at the word of life, come to us in the flesh, becomes a glory that clings to us and transforms us and conforms us to his beauty. That's a God worthy of worship. That's our God. When you obey, you obey the Lord, you are following someone who loves you like no other. When you obey the Lord, you're following someone who is transforming you into his glorious likeness. There becomes a loveliness about us which is not native to our own hearts, but which is now part of the new life bearing forth its fruit. When you obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you're following somebody who will never ever leave you, who will never let you go, who will never stop working in you, who will bring to completion on the last day what he has begun in you. We become like the thing we worship. Oh, little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Make every effort to worship the one who will make you like his glorious self.